Uh, please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness that you promised that you would send the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And Lord, we call upon you here and now for that promise to open our hearts and our minds to hear your word. Lord, remove every barrier. And Lord, give your word truly, make it fruitful. Give it life in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're, con we're continuing our series on the Psalms, and today we have Psalm 147. I'm going to tell you the title that was there was sort of a generic title. The title I'm going to use is Far Beyond, Yet Close at Hand. So it's not lifting up the humble, it's far, you know, far beyond, yet close at hand. Now we're going to take a four-pronged approach. We're going to start out by talking about looking at the Psalm in context. Psalm 147 is part of a, a greater book, the Book of Psalms. We'll talk, talk about its structure, which will tell us a lot how to understand it. We'll really look at its message. You know, sometimes we read the Psalms sort of like elevator music. You know, we hear all these nice things being said about God, but we don't realize, wow, there's really something here maybe I'm missing. And then we'll say, how does this actually apply to me in my life as a Christian? How does this apply? Let's start out with the, con uh, with the, um, with the context. The book of Psalms, in Hebrew, is Tehillim, is the name for the book. It means the book Songs of Praise. Yeah, that's what the, the, the book is, the, the Songs of Praise. Now, how do you end a book that's called the Songs of Praise? Well, what you have is the last five psalms are, in fact, specifically psalms of praise. So much so they have a very special structure. Each one begins with praise the Lord and ends with praise the Lord. And in Hebrew, that's hallelujah. Yah is God's proper name, Yahweh, Yah. Hallelujah, you know, praise the Lord. So these are the last five. It's sort of the whole, the consummation, you know, the, 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 the incredible uh, crescendo of the book of Psalms. So we're in the second of these five Psalms. And look, talk about its structure. It actually has three very distinct parts. That'll help us understand it, three parts. Verses, and how we can tell it, each part begins with an exhortation, like praise the Lord. And each part ends with a comparison, okay? For example, the first part is verses one through six. And we say it needs to begin with uh, an exhortation. So it begins, praise the Lord. And what's the comparison that closes it off? It says, the Lord lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. You know, a comparison. He lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. Then we have verses 7 through 11. It's the second sort of individual song. And which time, how do we begin the praise? It says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. That's our exhortation. And what's the comparison at the end? It says, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. The third part begins in uh, verse uh, 12, says, Praise the Lord, Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. That's our exhortation. It ends up with, He declares his word to Jacob and his statutes and rules to Israel. He's not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. So that tells us the three individual songs that make up Psalm 147. So let's look at our first part, which is the first six verses here. And what's the theme? It's a very powerful. The Lord is transcendent. That's why I say far beyond. He's transcendent. 
but he's imminent. He's also close at hand. Somehow God combines what can't be combined. He's both distant, you know, he's way far beyond, but he's also close at hand. So notice how we do this here. We say, uh, with transcendent, we say he determines the number of the stars. That might be odd. The word determines here, the Hebrew word, actually means like uh, calculates or counts. It's the regular Hebrew word for, for to count, calculates. So one of the things that people say, we might estimate how many stars there are, or like grains of sand is another Old Testament analogy. But no one could actually know, right? You could get, you get, a good, you get somewhere in the ballpark, you'd never know. It says, God, this is actually not a thing of power. It's about his thing of knowledge that God knows everything. And this is an important fact because some classical religion, the idea was, and a lot of us in modern times, it's sort of the um, uh, new age type of thing, is God is sort of a force, a vague force, sort of like gravity, except it seems more spiritual. You know, but there's no consciousness, there's no knowledge, right? It's just sort of a force out there. And it says, no, he knows, he is conscious. He, and boy, does he know. He doesn't have to estimate. He knows every last star. There is nothing he doesn't know. He's a God who is conscious, who knows. The next thing he says, we might miss the analogy here in our time, is he gives to all of them their names. We might think that's sort of, for want of a better term, cute. It's not. What does he do when, when Adam is put in charge, right, is made in charge of creation. What does he do? He brings all the animals and Adam gives them their name. You see, in the ancient world, to give a name was to exercise authority, to claim authority. Actually, something we would know with the explorers would go around the world and find an island somewhere with no on it. If they named it, you know, if you didn't claim it, you say, what's the name? What do people call this thing? But if they claimed it, they would give it a name. So giving a name shows is the traditional way of saying power. Adam named the animals. He was the one in charge. He controlled. He exercised authority. So when it says the Lord gives each its name, it's meaning every single star he controls. It's a poetic way. Every single star he controls. So we not only have knowledge, but we have power. Direct power applied. Then being poetry, we say the same thing, but we actually reverse it. We have A-B, and instead of A-B again, we say B-A. <laughs> so remember how we started with knowledge and then we went to power. Now we start with power saying, great is our God and abundant in power. And then we say his understanding is beyond measure. So, the trans so this is his transcendence. He has knowledge, not just any knowledge. He, he knows everything. He is completely, he knows everything. And he has control over everything. Then the next thing he talks about, we talk about here, is he, uh, he's also imminent. Look at what he talks about. This is really powerful. We, we, they sound, oh, these are nice things for God to do, but they all have one thing in common. Let's see if we can figure it out. It says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. All of these things involve restoration, making good things that are broken. That's the idea. All of these are things that aren't the way they should be. Something has gone terribly wrong. And God can make the terribly wrong go perfectly right. So this is actually talking about, you know, as a prophecy of after Babylon, you know, the restored. What's going to happen after all this is done? 
And he's saying, well, he's going to rebuild Jerusalem. No one believed that when you look at the wreck. No, he's going to rebuild this city. He's going to rebuild. He is going to build up Jerusalem. And what about all those people who got moved all around the world? You know, war, people end up everywhere. I think after the end of the Second World War, there were millions of people who were just uh, uh, displaced people. They called them DPs at the time. And they're everywhere. You know, people just were away from their homes. It was a mess. And the, Israel, after the exile, they're all over the place. And he says, we're not going to miss anybody. Everybody's coming home. He gathers up. Everyone's coming home. There will be no one missing at the table. He gathers up all the outcasts. What about the brokenhearted? He basically here, he heals our hearts and he heals our bodies. We have broken hearts. We also have broken bodies. Our heals our wounds. So all the things that have gone wrong with emotionally, spiritually, and physically, he can make those things good. He can restore. That is restoration. And what about the humble? He remembers the forgotten. The humble are the forgotten people. The people no one thinks about. They're just sort of a crowd scene, you know, bit players as, as the world looks at them. Not in God's eyes. He remembers them. He lifts them up. He takes action. He lifts them up. They're not, no one's forgotten to God. No one left behind. But then he says he also does justice. He ends oppression. And that's why he says he casts down the wicked to the ground. As long as the wicked are around, we have a problem. You know, how will those humble, you know, and he casts them, he takes, he destroys oppression. So the first thing we have, we start talking, God is transcendent, but he's imminent. And imminent means one of the first things we talk about is imminence, is that he really can make things right. A lot of us can think of a God who can create beautiful things, but it's hard for us to believe that he can restore things. We often feel that in our lives, don't we? There are people who say, if I were younger or something, well, you are all young, but uh, trust me, uh, later on, they'll say, you know, but now, let's say I'm in my 40s or 50s, my life has already gone by, it's too late. This can't be restored. He says, God, that's not true. God builds up Jerusalem. He heals the brokenhearted. You know, God, there is no situation that God cannot redeem. So let's look at the second part. The second part is uh, verses 7 through 11. And the theme starts out with, the Lord sustains life and seeks relationship. The next thing we sometimes have is the notion that God is sort of like someone who winds up a clock and steps away and let it do its thing. You know, a very mechanical universe. And what he's going to point out here is, no, actually God remains critically involved in the smallest details of life. You might not know this. I have great admiration for the, the rabbis in the Talmud. And they, if you're a rabbi, you have an answer for everything. It's all been laid out for you. So what do you do if somebody comes to you as a rabbi and says, I think you know, uh, God has given up on me. I, my situation is hopeless. What will the rabbi say? It's a standard answer. You appear to be breathing. What he means by this is the Jews believe that every single breath is an individual gift of God. You know, we forget that. It's not like, oh, once he, he loved me once, he created me, but he's sort of gone away since then. You know, it's sort of like a parent who's abandoned a child or something. Yeah, he gave me life, but I've never, I haven't seen dad since I was one. You know? <laughs> no, no, he's still every single breath is an act of God, every last one. So how he does it is when you try to say the Middle East, as you think, in a world that desperately depends on rain, in a, you know, the abundance of rain in North America is something simply shocking to anyone else. Okay, uh, the, where people don't, in the Eastern United States don't, just don't have to think about this. Everywhere else people do. Okay, and so he has here, how do we see that? He covers the heavens with clouds. That's, you know, 
He prepares rain for the earth. He makes the grass green. He gives the beasts their food, the young ravens that cry. So he's saying this is not an automatic pilot. He's not, he didn't just create the world. Every time we have a rain, it's God taking care. It's like someone who plants a garden, and he zealously, my wife is a huge gardener. She loves this stuff. And, you know, she treats like she, she was great with our children. You should see her with our plants. I mean, you know, she's always worried, do they have enough, you know, enough water? You know, she's out there no matter what. You know, are they okay? And he says, God is like that with the whole earth. And, and with everything. He says, look, look at the example he gives. He gives the, the birds in the sky, the ravens in the sky, and he talks about, you know, just the, the animals below. So he's saying, good news, God didn't just make the world and walk away and wish you good luck. You know, everything that goes on, God is still, God is the sustainer of life. He's active in life, every piece of it. Then we're talked about, he seeks relationship. Something that might strike us as simply, his pleasure is not in the legs of a man, this was a strange thing to us, is in battle, uh, this is a really important thing, and an army made up almost entirely of infantry and the like. You know, this was a part of a strength. Somebody's really going to be a strong warrior. And they talk about horses, you know, horses and men saying strength. If, strength is normally what people admire, you know, what they look for. If you're, like if you're buying a horse in the ancient world, you say, look at the legs and things. This is what you're really buying, the speed. This is what you're, what are you looking for to decide its value? Okay, what do I look for? If I'm looking for someone to be an infantry, I'm saying, does this guy physically look like he has to take it? You know, does he, does he look like a marine or an accountant? Okay, <laughs> I mean, does he have physically what it takes? And he says, we might think God looks at us that way. And he says, not at all. You know what God wants? He looks at those, what he really treasures, it says. What gives him joy is relationship, people who fear him. That means we've entered into relation with him, for whom he's part of their life. By the way, that's what fear of the Lord means, is we just have this healthy respect for God. We don't forget him. You know, it's like when you're a parent and you have adult children, one of your joys is that you remain part of their life. You know, they tell you. It's not like, okay, you're gone and we move on. Well, they're still, you're, they're, you're, they call you and you share life with them. And that's what fear of the Lord is. Fear of the Lord means that we look upon God as actually being an ongoing part of our life. That's what God, the fear of the Lord. And he also says those who, Hope in him, you know, who put their hope in him. Okay, have hope in his steadfast love. So it's saying, we don't have to worry, well, you know, God obviously favors some type of people. The stars, you know, the, the rock stars around us, we so to say, in our different areas. God doesn't care about any of that. What he cares about is possible for anybody, no matter what our circumstances. He sees love as the only, he doesn't want anything more, and he won't accept anything less. The thing is, the one thing that is important to him, here's a God who seeks relationship. It says this is what gives him joy. This is what gives him pleasure, his relationship. We get to part three, verses 12 through 20. And it's saying, remember before how we said God is the one who rebuilds and restores. But you know, sometimes, you know, you get, you get sick or something, go to the doctor, and they can get you out of it. So the fact is you don't hurt anymore. You know, things are fixed. But he says, God doesn't stop there with restoration. He wants abundance. I mean, he wants you out running. He wants you out in the gym, not just simply a matter that you're not lying in a hospital bed. So look at the example he gives. He says, the Lord, uh, he says, he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. So we're not talking about just making things okay. It's like, Jesus, I came to give them life and give them life abundantly.
Um, I think I have a mic. No, here we are. Okay. Sorry, I thought I had a mic problem. And now something else beautiful is that you know that um, the Word, we know Jesus is the Word of God, the eternal Word. In the beginning was the Word. Okay. So we're saying we see the Word in two places. It says we see God's Word in creation. This is what Paul said. You remember Paul in, in, in Romans said, what about people who've never had the revelation of the Holy Scripture? What about people who aren't Jews? And he said, they're without any excuse. He said, you know, the, his nature, the evidence, you know, looking around us of his goodness and power is all around us. So he's saying we, we see the Word, the power of God at work, you know, in creation. That's the first part. So we see that here where he says, he sends out his command to the earth, his Word runs swiftly. He gives snow light. Okay, his word runs, runs swiftly. And notice it says his word, it says he gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and it melts them. He makes the wind blow and the waters flow. This is a really powerful comparison we can miss. Why? We find this a few times in a place that doesn't have, snow is a rare thing in, in, in the Holy Land. You know, so to have, he's talked about, they, they know about this can happen in the world. This is one of those wondrous things with, you know, snow and ice and you know, the waters, you know. So why does he mention this? Here's what's beautiful. God has the power of life and death. He can stop everything. That's the, the image of winter is it stops everything. From Illinois, that can't be that way for us. But let's say for people who don't know real winters, aren't used to it. Okay, everything stops, stops cold, no pun intended. It stops cold. It hardens, like literally water becomes ice, becomes hard. Everything becomes hard and ceases moving. It's like death. But he says the same word that causes everything to, you know, winter, everything to so go into, into, into dor uh, to become dormant. In spring, the same word makes the streams flow again. It warms up everything. It brings life. So, so the idea is it's from death to life. You know, he's the one who takes the things that are dead and brings them back. Every spring is a resurrection and brings them back to life. Then he also said, that's what we call the general revelation. And he says also, it's not just that. God has actually spoken to us. It says, he declares his word to Jacob, declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know uh, his rules. So he's saying, in addition, God wasn't satisfied by leaving evidence of him all around. God wanted relationship, so he personally came and spoke to us. And he personally broke in. And he says, Israel, I've spoken to you. I've declared, I've come to meet you. So where does all this apply to us? Uh, in, our, in our lives as Christians. The first thing is God being transcendent. It's really important to know again that God is both powerful and knowing. You know, in the sense is, first of all, with knowing, he's not, he actually knows me. One thing in John's gospel you might not have noticed is a big theme in John's gospel is what converts people. And you know what it is? I'll give you the secret. It's when people finally realize God actually knows me personally. A classic example, Nathaniel, one of our first things, uh, you know, with Jesus calling disciples. When Jesus meets Nathaniel, he said, uh, you know, he's, uh, Nathaniel is not impressed. 
He said, where do you come from? Typical, you know, you know he basically said, well, you're from Galilee. He said, what well, good can come out of Galilee? Okay. So he's not impressed. But then Jesus says, no, no, I saw you were under the fig tree. And this is a figure of speech. Uh, being under the fig tree is a Jewish way of saying studying Torah. Uh, the fig tree is a symbol of the Torah. And, okay, so it's the, the fixed way of saying, you know, uh, you know uh, like we say, worship and serve for singing. You know, <laughs> you know, it's the standard way. To, this, I, I saw you study. And he said, oh, my Lord, he actually knows me. Remember what happens uh, when we, I have the woman at the well. You know, she's being pretty sarcastic. You know, he's saying, I'll give you living waters. We should have been nice if you had a bucket. You know, she's not impressed by the premise, you know. You're talking about giving water. I'm the one with a bucket here. Okay. She's not impressed. And then he says, you know, call your husband. He said, you know, but she said, I have five. She said, no, no, the one you're with, he isn't your husband. He said, he knows me. He knows me. I'm not, a, I'm not a generic Samaritan, you know, like when they have movies in the, in the generics where they'll say, um, uh, you know, uh, man number three or something, that kind of thing. He knows who I am is what really, and what, look, our, our Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene actually sees angels. They say, why are you looking here? But she doesn't get it. She sees Jesus. She doesn't recognize him. She doesn't recognize his voice. She doesn't recognize him looking at him. She thinks he's the gardener. What is it? She says, Mary. He knows her. And that's what does it. So we're, we're saying here that we know he's a God who actually knows us individually, not a crowd scene, not knowing about our generic categories, our species characteristics. He knows me. It's like he says to the prophets, before, when you were, before you were in the womb, I knew you. You know, I knew, you know, I, I know who you are. And also he has the power. God's providence is in control. Sometimes the reason we don't have faith is we don't believe God is really in control. He said, no, everything, God, there's nothing he doesn't control. Now, we summarize this, by the way, in the Our Father, which we had today, is the traditional form for the Matthew of Our Father is we say, Our Father, which is imminence, Father, that direct connection with me who art in heaven, transcendence. He's a father, but he's also the ruler of the heavens and the earth. He, he actually, the great miracle of God is he brings those two together. He brings infinity with specificity. He brings those two together wondrously. Our father, who art in heaven. You're both simultaneously. A God who cares for me and can do something about it. You know, has the power and knowledge to do something about it. Okay, a God who is imminent, a God who cares about his people, who takes things that are broken, instead of casting them away, we live in a disposable society. We love to just cast things away. It's not worth something like, you know, uh, we just have all sorts of things like computers thing. We don't even bother. That's not a question of repairing them. We toss them on and get a new one. And he's one who actually repairs. He fixes. He doesn't just simply replace. He fixes. We also have a God who sustains. <coughs> Let me explain something in John's gospel you might not have realized. It's sort of neat. Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath. And they say, what are you doing? And he makes, he makes a, a statement that if you're not Jewish, it might seem strange. You just sort of go by and say, well, I guess John says stuff like that. He said, the Father is at work, and I'm at work also. What does that mean? What it means is any good Jew could tell you that if you look at the Torah, if you look at Genesis 1, it says... It doesn't say God rested. It said God rested from the work of creation. God could never rest or the world would end. 
In the sense, God can never take off. He had finished the work of creation, but God has to sustain the world with, you know, with uh, sustain the world. So that, uh, the notion is we have a God who actually, you know, is active and at work in our lives. You know, the, the Father is at work and I'm at work too. And we have a God who seeks relationship with us. It's not just he knows who I am. He actually cares enough saying, I created you for a purpose. I want to have a relationship with you. And it doesn't matter who you are. I don't care about any of the stuff the world looks at. What I love is people who really are in a relationship with me. It doesn't matter who they are, what they look like, what they do. That's what really I love. I love people who trust me, who put their trust in me. And he says, it's my joy. It's my pleasure. It's my joy. The other stuff I don't care about. People care about that stuff. I don't. Then we have um, the God who's revealed himself. So it's not a generic God. He wants to know us, give every detail. Not only does he show himself in creation, his fingerprints on everything, but he also shows himself in the Holy Scriptures. But most important, he showed himself in the, the word incarnate, Jesus Christ. We've met him personally, face to face. He's with us. He speaks to us in the word. We meet him at his table. You know, he's in our lives. His spirit is in us. So this is a God who's done everything for relationship, where it's not some idea. It's a living God who's actually revealed himself specifically to us. So in light of all of that, what can our, what can our response be? The book of Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament, if you're unaware of that. And the book Jesus quotes more than any. And we said it's the book of praises. Now, we've talked about this psalm tells us the amazing things God has done. For us, he's created us. He sustains us. He restores us. He reveals himself to us. So now we can answer the question, how do I respond to all of that? And what's the answer? We have it in the last five psalms. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah.